Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and just hold your spot there. It's going to take us a little time before we get there, but Titus chapter 1 is where we're going to be uh, starting it, or, or getting to at least eventually later this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn there uh, with me, if you will, uh, or if you have different kind of Bible, you can turn your Bible on now and scroll your way to, uh, to I know how it works, yeah, you're uh, checking scores and saying, I've got a Bible on here. I know how all that works. So uh, turn on your Bible and scroll or turn in your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter one. Just hold your spot there. We're going to get there here uh, in just a bit. Well, we've been in a series called Burning Questions and we call it Burning Questions for a reason. And a lot of you know this now because we're four messages or so in this series. Um, Burning questions because the messages are typically in response to questions that you've turned in. I mean, they're burning questions. In other words, are questions you've wanted to know the answer to, and you've, you've thought, you know, I wish I could just ask this question. I don't know who to ask it to. I don't want to put my name to it. I don't want to raise my hand, but I've just got a question that's burning in my heart, and I've got to ask this question. Well, we've got this series called Burning Questions, and the topic specifically is church. Now, that may be questions about this church specifically, or it may be questions about church in general, but for these past few weeks, a lot of you have turned in questions, uh, burning questions about that topic. They've been anonymous questions, and we try to deal with them typically on a weekly basis. Well, last Sunday, I did something a little out of the ordinary. I I started a part one of a two-part message, and I don't usually do that, Uh, but I had a lot of stuff to cover uh, that that we started with last Sunday, and today we're going to finish it up. So if you weren't here last Sunday, you can hear that message on our website, or I'm going to give you a quick little recap here in just a moment, but we're going to finish out the message from last Sunday specifically this morning as part of this series called Burning Questions. You know, I look back at church in my life. I've been in church for a long time. Uh, I was blessed to have parents that, uh, that for the most part, um, had us in church fairly consistently. There were periods in our lives where we can look back and, you know, we were not in church and other times where we were, it was kind of, kind of an up and down, up and down. But church was a part of my experience growing up, at least to some degree. And, um, and so through the years, I've been a part of a lot of different types of churches. I've preached in a lot of churches. Uh, I've, I've visited a lot of churches. I've been in a lot of different churches, just like a lot of you. And so my experiences have been really, really varied. I mean, I've had some great, great experiences in local churches, ways that churches have just been such a blessing to me, such a benefit to me in my own, my own Christian walk, my own walk with God. But then there have been times where I've witnessed things that just head scratchers, and you think, really? Is this what a church does? I mean, is this what church is all about? I've got a friend of mine that I served with in ministry for about three years, and uh, he pastored a lot of smaller churches, the church that we served at together. Uh, if we had 100 in, in Sunday school that day, it was a big, big, big day. It was a smaller church. And uh, he had just had experiences in his life where he had been let go from churches, not for anything he had done wrong, not for anything that he had preached that was wrong. In fact, it was for things that he'd preached that was right. He was very, very firmly committed to teaching and preaching God's Word and to laying out that truth in a way that it should be. And there were churches that he had worked in that did not appreciate that, and that just basically kicked him to the curb. At one particular point, I remember them telling me, and I was early on in my ministry, it's a wonder I stayed in, stayed in ministry. He said they were serving this one church, and uh, uh, they lived in, the, in the, um, the parsonage there, which you don't hear a whole lot about parsonages anymore, but you know, churches that owned the living place where the pastor would live with his family. And uh, when he got fired, when he got let go for just preaching the truth of God's word, well, he lost his home at the same time as well. And they basically gave him X amount of days before you're out of there. And, uh, you know, we're done with you. And you hear stories like that. And you think, really, is that, is that what the 
what the church is supposed to be like. I remember in my past um, being, being at churches before, one in particular where you know, the, the largest services they had were whenever there was turmoil going on. You know, and there was going to be a report about that. And you, you, you hear stories like that and, and you think, wow, really? Is that what church is supposed to be? And we've all got our stories, I think. We've got stories of really, really good experiences where, where the church was what the church was supposed to be. And then we've got stories of really tough experiences where the church as a collection of people really wasn't what it was supposed to be. And there seems to be a gap between the church defined and the church in reality in a lot of places. And what we're doing through this series, this is my real desire, is that for those of us who are committed to this ministry here, who are a part of this, this church, this family of believers, my desire is really through this series, not because of anything I say, but just with our interaction with Scripture, that God really takes us deeper. And that God helps us to understand a little better that, that church is not a place where we go. Church is not just something we do. Church is who we are. And that we understand, honestly, that we understand to the, way, to, to the degree to where we fundamentally, we change how we live and how we do things and how we treat each other. And, and that we, we just operate differently because of what God shows us through this series. For those of you that are visiting, this may be your first or second Sunday. You may have breezed in right around the time we started this series and you're checking things out. I really hope you hear through this series, I hope you'll come back and I hope you'll hear a, a bit of what we're aiming for. That in the culture, one of the biggest slams against the church, well, that's just a bunch of hypocrites. And we can say fancy stuff if we want, you know, you know a little goofy stuff. Well, come on, one more won't hurt, you know, that kind of stuff. We can say those things if we want, or we can really address the issue. That the, the, the group of people outside the walls of the church really have issues with people inside the church. And in a lot of cases, rightly so. And so if you're visiting and you're a guest here, I really hope you hear a little bit of what we're aiming for and that you begin to see that we're trying to pattern ourselves after Scripture. We don't get it right all the time in how we do things, but our desire is to honor God. I've made the comment before that you're going to find what you're looking for here in this church. That if you come and you're looking for something out of place or you're looking for something wrong or you're looking for something that could be stronger or better, you're going to find it. I mean, you're just going to find it. If you're looking for a message that, you know, that has little you know, things that could have been said a little differently or worded a little bit better, you're going to hear that. You're going to find that. We're, we've not arrived. But if you're looking for a place where God is at work and where change, lives are being impacted and where people are being reached and where God is on the move, then you're going to find that here as well because God is very much at work here. And our desire is not to coast. It's not to let our foot off the gas. It's not to believe that it's all because of something we're doing, pushing the right buttons. It's a matter of letting God be who God wants to be and we being who God's called us to be. And so that's really the aim through this series called Burning Questions. So I hope it's, I hope it's been a benefit already, but we've got quite a few more messages to go before we, uh, before we finish up this series. So keep the questions coming. We've got a box out in the lobby. If you've got more questions, we'd be glad to try to deal with those the best we can and uh, uh, to, to give the answers that hopefully would be honoring to God as we do that. So Burning Questions. Here's where we were last week. What we looked at last week was we... Um, we summarized the, the local church with four word pictures, so to speak. The question we asked last Sunday was, you know, what is the church? What is the church to begin with? Because you will ask people, what is your definition of church? And you're going to hear a variety of answers. You're going to hear a wide range of answers of what the church really is. Some would say that you know, the, the church is, is a, it's a building, it's a group of people in a specific location. Others would say, well, no, the church doesn't have to be in a building. It can be online or it can be on TV or whatever. You've got a wide variety. What we did was we just summarized, in a sense, 
what the church is in four, four specific word pictures. Last Sunday, as a recap, we said, first of all, the church is a bowl. It's like a bowl. And just as a bowl collects things and gathers things and is a place for things that have been collected to be together, the church as well is also a bowl. It is a collection device, so to speak. And what it collects is a group of redefined people. People whose lives have been redefined by God. One of the passages we looked at last Sunday was in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, we can go ahead and bring that up. Look at what it says here. Paul is writing a letter uh, to the church in the city of Corinth. And he says here in verse 1, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church, there's the word, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then he identifies who the church is. He identifies them as a collection of people who have been redefined. He says this church is, is those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. And we unpacked that a little bit more last Sunday. I won't take the time to do it today. But what we summarized that statement in was that we just held up this bowl and said the church, by God's definition, is a collection of redefined people. People who have responded to the message of the gospel. They've turned from their sin. They've, they've uh, become followers of Christ. They've placed their faith in Jesus. And what God does in response to that is that he redefines them. He says, you are now sanctified. In other words, you have been made holy and you're standing before God. You have been set apart for my purposes, God says. And, and I, hey, I'll even go so far as to call you a saint. God says, you are now saints by calling. He redefines us. And in this building today, filled with people whose lives have been redefined. If you go to your 20-year reunion in high school, your 30-year, your 40-year, your 50-year, whatever reunion you go to, you, people may say, you look just the same, or you act just the same, and nothing's changed about you. But if they can see the inside of you, that if you didn't know Christ back then, but today you do, man, you are completely different. And what the church is... It's a bowl full of those people who have been redefined by God. We are a collection. That's what every church is, a collection of redefined people. But secondly, what we looked at last Sunday was that we also are a community. Not just a collection of people who do their thing on Sunday, punch the clock, check the box, go off and do their own thing Monday through Saturday. Now, we're, at least biblically speaking, we are a community signified by this heart community of people whose lives have been redefined. Over 50 times in the New Testament, you'll read the phrase one another. And what's associated with that is that often you'll find, whether it's in the Gospels and Jesus is saying it, or whether it's one of Paul's letters or elsewhere, you'll find that over 50 times there are are commands where we're told to love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, uh, forgive one another. And as we looked at in the very beginning of this series, it's in the context of church that God teaches us to move from a mentality of me to a mentality of we. And he takes those redefined people, those believers, Christians, followers of Christ, and he calls us not just to assemble together in the same place, to call that church. No, he calls us to engraft our lives one with the other, consistently, continually, so that we might have a heart for one another. And so we looked at church as a bowl full of redefined people, who are a community of people. But also last week, thirdly, we looked and said from Scripture that we uh, are called to reflect Christ. We're called to reflect God and His glory. And the degree to which we do that often will be the degree to which people outside the church have a desire and a hunger and a passion to know the God that we proclaim. We're called to put Him on display. And then last week, 
the fourth word picture we gave was the picture of a megaphone. The church, this bowl full of redefined people with hearts for one another, living lives that put Christ on display, bringing God's glory to the forefront, are also called to make our voice heard. Not to raise a ruckus and to stir the pot to create dissension in communities, not to gossip about one another, but we are called to proclaim the one message that has changed history. That's the message that Jesus Christ, God himself, came as a man, he died on a cross, he rose again from the grave, and he stands ready to take over every life that is humbly yielded to him in repentance and faith. That is our message. And so we summarized all that. We looked at it last Sunday. We worked passages, verses in and out of of these word pictures. And what we did to summarize it was to say that the local church is really a balance. It's a balance of insiders, because we are insiders. And I don't say that in a bad way. The church has often missed it by saying, oh, we're a holy huddle and a club and you can't come in because this is who we are. I don't mean insiders that way. We're insiders because God has called us apart and he's redefined us. We are insiders, but we're called to pursue outsiders, those who don't know Christ, living lives that put them on display, speaking words that bring the gospel to the forefront. So that, that's who we are. If you ask, what is the church? Hopefully, th- this has summarized it. You know, we're a bowl, we're a heart, we're a mirror, we're a megaphone. That, that's who we are. So whenever you look at that, that's the summary from last Sunday. Whenever you look at those word pictures and we identify who we are as a church, what the local church is all about, then understand that if God went to the trouble that he went to, to establish a church and to call it into existence and to define it the way that he has, then you can absolutely guarantee that the enemy is going to do whatever he can to come against something that God has created to be so effective and so efficient in proclaiming himself. Right? The enemy is going to come against it. And you know this because you've been in churches that have been in turmoil. You've been in churches that have split. You've heard stories of all the, the, the goings-on at churches in your community. And you may have been one of those people who, uh, who didn't know Christ. And you heard all the stories. And the reason it took so long to even go to a church for you was because of all the negative stuff that you heard. You, that may be your experience. And to a large degree, it's because the enemy absolutely hates everything that the church is about. And so what the enemy hates, he's going to threaten and he's going to bring his greatest strategies against. And that's what I want us to look at in our time this morning. Four threats that I perceive to be real, genuine threats to the local church today as I have described it and as Scripture lays it out for us. Now, let me just just ask this question. Why is this so important to begin with? Why is it so important that we identify and define what church is? Why do we have to look at the threats against it? One, because there's nothing else in history like the church. There's just nothing else. There's not one business, there's not a corporation, there's not an academic center, there is not any other structure in existence that is like the local church. It is phenomenal what what happens. The impact that just this local church can have in this city. And when you think about the few staff members that we have, by and large, hey listen, if, if, if I left, this church would go on. Probably be stronger as a result of it. If our staff said, you know what, we're done, we're leaving. This church would still exist. But if, if you, as those who are believers who get it, you understand the part you play, you call it volunteer, call it service, whatever you want to call it, if you quit and left, we would have huge issues. And so this is a we thing. This is a big picture thing. So why is it important that we even look at this? Because there's nothing else in creation like the local church. It is phenomenal in how God has put it together. And by the way, the second reason this is important 
is because in some cases the name of Christ is at stake. The name of Christ is at stake, and we're the ones who bear that name. So this is extremely important. So let's go ahead and start looking at some, some uh, threats against this thing called the local church. Let me give you four of them this morning. The first is doctrinal error. Doctrinal error. That sounds boring, doesn't it? Doctrine. Doctrine. Hey, we're going to skip lunch today, and we're going to do a two-hour seminar on doctrine. Who's in? Right? Doesn't that sound just engaging? Doctrine. (laughs) I can't wait. You know what? Doctrine is extremely important when we understand what it is. If you look up the word doctrine in the, in the dictionary, what you'll find is a, is a definition similar to this. It is a, a, a set of guiding beliefs or principles in an organization. It's a, it's a set of beliefs. It's a, it's a belief system that guides and directs a specific organization. It's not just a church who has doctrine. I mean, there are other places. That, when I was in seminary, for example, my, my ethics professor, he drafted, this is just amazing, he drafted for the first Gulf War, he drafted the, the, the just war doctrine that President Bush utilized during that first Gulf War. I mean, he put it together. It's called the just war doctrine. It's not just churches that use the word doctrine. Why? Because the word doctrine refers to a set of beliefs or or truths that, that guide a specific organization. For we as believers, for we as Christians, what is that? It's the Bible. It's, it's the Bible that you hold in your hands that, that, that gives you that set of beliefs, that set of truths that, that guide us as people, that guide us as families, that guide us as, as churches. This is our doctrine. This, this, these are the running tracks. The truth of God, they're like railroad tracks. And we as individuals, we as families, we as churches, we get on those railroad tracks, the truth of God, and we run those tracks as far as God will allow us to. But we run on the tracks of God's truth. And the Bible is God's truth. That's doctrine. So that whenever you look at a, truth, at a church and whenever you see one of the greatest threats against it, one of those threats being doctrine, what we find is that where God brings his truth, the enemy is always going to try to replace that with error. He's going to try to shade that truth. We had a burning question that came in, and I understand, I think, I don't know who wrote it, but I understand the intent behind it. But I just want to springboard off of it into something a little bit bigger. The question says, why do some churches get so wrapped up in doctrine issues? Uh, I don't think that means what you think it means. I, I did have a pastor friend tell me one time, he had a fellow confront him and basically said, yeah, I don't care what the Bible says. da 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 yeah, you got some issues in that church when people in the church don't care what the Bible says. And I don't think this is where this question is going. They say, why do some churches get so wrapped up in doctrine issues? Uh, parentheses, women in church, drinking any alcohol, food restrictions. By the way, I'm not opposed to women in church. I really, I've got quite a few in my family that are in church. <laughs> I think I understand kind of where that question was going. Probably, no, we don't have time for that. So when the Bible, why, why do churches get so wrapped up in these kinds of I think what they're saying is peripheral doctrinal issues when the Bible is clear on how these issues are applied. It seems to create unnecessary division when we should be united as believers in Christ, not personal application. Granted, and I completely agree, a lot of churches, they get uh, uh, drawn in to a lot of peripheral issues that are important, but they're not what they're called to be. Sometimes people will ask me around election year, you know, why don't we have more sermons on political stuff? It's because the Bible speaks into politics, but it is not a political book. The most important 
factor in a person's life is not the way they vote. The most important factor in a person's life is who they will choose to follow as their Lord and their Savior. And so we can't get sidetracked. There, are a, there is a real tendency in some churches to get sidetracked with issues that are peripheral in nature and lose sight of the main thing, and that is God's glory is at stake. We are called to honor Him through the lives that we live, to know Him deeply in a, in a walk that is a walk of joy, and to make His name great in the lives of those who don't know Him. So doctrinal error, I'm not talking about the peripheral issues. I'm talking about when the truth of God's Word is distorted or neglected. That's what I'm talking about. And there are churches that have done that, and have lost their influence as a result. When, um, whenever I was a kid, I remember early in my Christian life, my mom would make a statement to me. Now, this would have been late 70s, I guess. You didn't have the um, numbers of preachers and teachers on television as you do today. But I remember she told me early in my Christian life, my mom said, don't watch church on TV. <laughs> I remember thinking, what in the world? You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a new believer now. And I thought church is important. What do you mean not watching church on TV? And uh, I got older, and now I know what she meant. Because there are some pastors and some teachers that are not worth listening to because they will say things that will make you happy and feel good, but will draw you, if you're not careful, into doctrinal error, which always leads to shipwreck, by the way doesn't matter if on individual level or church-wide level. I could name names from this platform and take quite a while to do it of people that you were well familiar with on television, on radio, on the internet, and they will say things that will tickle your ears and make you feel good about yourself and have a nice, warm, fuzzy day that use the Word of God and mingle in Scripture, but they are filled with error that will cause you great heartache if you're not careful. And you read their books and you potentially have friends that watch them on television and glow over the things they say. And as they say, a blind, acorn, a blind hog will find an acorn from time to time. They will say things that are accurate, but there is too much that's mixed in that is inaccurate, that is just erroneous, and if not outright heretical, that will cause huge issues. Church doesn't mean today what it used to mean when you were a kid. It just doesn't. We go to the Philippines twice a year. I've been able to go a few times myself, and I think on every occasion that I've been, we stop halfway up into the province once we arrive in Manila. We stop halfway up in a little city called Cabanatuan. They've got a mall there. It's not your mall, <laughs> and, uh, but they do have a McDonald's, which is good enough for me, and so we always stop there, and we hit that McDonald's, and it's like our last gorging of American food on our way into the province, and when we come back, it's our, you know, like you would think we were dying of rice inhalation, you know, there in the province, and we're just gorging ourselves on Big Macs on our way back out, and uh, we stop in that city, and I would say, I think, the times I've been there, if I'm not mistaken, every single time that I've been, we have encountered U.S.-born, U.S.-raised Mormon missionaries there in that mall area. Born and raised here in the States, serving in the Philippines. Who are they? They're Mormons. Oh, no, there's a technical name. They are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Church doesn't mean today what it meant when you were a kid. There are churches today that bear the name church that have no business calling themselves that. And the reason is because they have either distorted or neglected, if not having outright done away with the truth of God's Word. So doctrine may tempt you to be a little bit bored. Doctrine may tempt you to say, well, this is just stuffy stuff. Why don't we need to argue over doctrine? Doctrine is the heart. It's the heart of 
really of the way you live your life because it's the truth of God's word. Look at what it says in Titus, the book of Titus chapter 1. I had you turn there earlier. Notice what Paul says. Let me give you a little backstory here. Uh, Titus has been dropped off in Crete, basically. He's been set down in Crete, Crete being an island. And Titus has been given the job of, plant, uh, of finding capable pastors and leaders in the cities around Crete. And so Titus, here's your job description. You find those people who are able to serve as pastors, and I want you to appoint them in every city on that island. That's Titus's job description. Titus is written a letter from Paul to help in this, and that's the, the letter that you hold right there in your Bible, Titus chapter 1. Notice what Paul says to him in verse 7. You'll see it on the overhead if you don't have your Bible. He says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that, in other words, he's to be all of this, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You ask Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Paul, is sound doctrine important, or do we just need to put our ear to the ground of the culture and listen for what they desire and feed it to them the best we can? Paul would say, no, sound doctrine is the heartbeat of who you are. It's the heartbeat of what you were called to do as a church. And he says to Titus, when you go out and you find these people, you'll find him there in chapter 1, Uh, verse 5, you'll you'll find Paul basically saying to Titus, when you go out and you appoint elders or pastors in each of these cities around this island, you need to find men who are able to preach and teach the truth. Men who are committed to sound doctrine. Why? Because if they're not, they're going to begin leading churches, bowlfuls of redefined people who are going to be wandering around in a wasteland of doctrinal error. It's that important. We don't want shipwrecked believers whose lives are wasted because they got off into something that sounded good but ran off the tracks of the truth of God's Word. And so it's extremely important. When you look at the threats to the local church today, one of the biggest threats is this whole issue of doctrinal error. Following things that God never intended for us to follow that we don't find anywhere in Scripture. And so here's an application for you individually. You may want to ask yourself, chew on this for a little bit, What is it that I'm believing that would be in contradiction to the truth of God's Word? What is it that I'm believing? Because the church is only as healthy as the people who comprise it, right? And so ask yourself, what is it that I'm believing in my life? What is it that I'm holding as true, something that falls outside the bounds of and is even in contradiction to the truth of Scripture? And then as you weigh that in the balance you'll be wise to remember that error always leads to shipwrecks of our faith. Following truth is extremely, extremely important. What's the second threat? If we don't follow, if we fall into doctrinal error, what happens is is that we redefine this bowl. Falling into doctrinal error as churches just breaks this bowl to pieces. It redefines the bowl full of people that God has redefined. That's why it's important. A second threat 
is the threat of me-centeredness. I made up that word. <laughs> I, I kind of like it. You put a hyphen in there, you can say almost anything. Me-centeredness. Me-centeredness is the threat to the oneness of that church. Remember, God has called us as a church, as a collection of redefined people. He has called us also to have a heart for one another, to love one another, to forgive one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to build up one another, to bear the burdens of one another. He's called us to all of that, right? So if we have a mentality as a church of me-centeredness over we-centeredness, what happens is it just rips that heart to shreds. It causes the testimony of that church ultimately to be weakened. It causes the testimony of that church to be to be torn apart. Jesus was asked a question. It's interesting how many people brought questions to Jesus. He was asked a question one day. Can you summarize for us the greatest commandment? The greatest. I mean, Moses had whittled them all down to ten, right? Ten commandments. Someone comes to Jesus. Can you, can you just, sum, just put it on? Don't have time to read it. We don't have cliff notes. Just summarize for us. What is the greatest commandment? You know what Jesus said? He, he said, I'll give you two. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your, all your heart, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And he says, and the, great, the second is to love your neighbor, what? As yourself. So do you mean to tell me, Jesus, really? I ask you this question, what is the greatest command? And this is what you give me. It's to love God with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength. And to love my neighbor? as myself. Is it really that important? Yeah. It's the essence of what the church is. It's our love for one another. In fact, look at what it says in John chapter 13. We've got on the overhead here. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And then he he defines that. He gives us a description of it. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's an amazing verse because he tells us and he shows us what that looks like. When he says love one another, it doesn't mean we just put up with each other. It doesn't mean that we just, you know, just bear with one another and just kind of grind it through like you do with your boss at work. I hope your boss isn't sitting by you. That'd be a little awkward. But it's not that. It means that we actually, we love sacrificially. We put that on display. And if we need to know how do we do this, he says, even as I have loved you, I've loved you all the way to a cross. I've loved you unconditionally. I've met you where you are. I've loved you sacrificially. I've done whatever it took for me to demonstrate the love of the Father to you. This is what I've called you to do. Even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And then verse 35 is even more phenomenal. He says, by this, if you get this right, if you do this, he says, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you are followers of me, that you are with me, he'll say, if you have love for one another. And what he's doing is, he's actually accomplishing two things in that statement he says if you have love for one another as i have loved you you're going to have community in that group in that bowl full of redefined people you're going to have community but if you do that well you're also verse 35 going to put me on display you're going to give me glory you're going to give me honor and people will look at you and they will say what an amazing example of what the love of god looks like as expressed in you a bowl full of redefined people but the church has missed this And missed it badly. Have you ever been in a church that didn't love each other? You ever been there? Hopefully not this one. You ever been there? Have you ever gone to a church and somebody said, that's my seat? You ever had that happen to you? How many of you have had that happen? I'm curious. Look around for just a second. That's, 
If anybody in this church ever does that, please don't. I'm, I'm going to pray bad things <laughs> on your life. <laughs> just don't go there. Man, that's just horrible. Just horrible. I've gotten to, I've preached a lot of churches through the years. And uh, it's amazing how mean some people can be inside the walls of the church. You, know, you want to just say, man, a sermon wasn't that bad. You know, good night. You treat me like the devil himself. I mean, churches can be mean. Just mean. And you wonder, where's the, where is the, the reflection of our Savior who loved us all the way to the very end? And then you get to the inside. And there's gossip and there's backbiting and there's you know, putting on one face for this person and going behind their back and putting on another face for another person. It's, it's horrible, horrible stuff that takes place in the context of a local church. And people, you know, if that were to happen here, you know what my response would be? Is that you know, I can't hold hands with every single person and I can't control people, not one in this whole church. I can't do that. There has to be a responsibility where we collectively understand what it means to love one another. And if we're not able to love one another on the inside, we may as well shut down every mission trip. We may as well shut down every service opportunity, every outreach event that we have planned for the purpose of reaching people. Because if we can't get it right on the inside, we definitely don't need people coming in from the outside trying to pattern themselves after who we are. Does that make sense? And I'm grateful for us that we have a lot of health in this church and we have a lot of unity. But I'm just saying, it's only as strong as the weakest link, if you understand what I'm saying. And this is, an, this is an individual thing where we have to be certain that we take the step to show and demonstrate love for those around us. Not me-centered. That will threaten the church, divide the church. Not me-centeredness. But a we-centered mentality focused on Christ that says, I will go to whatever extreme to demonstrate God's love to those around me. Now, let, let me just say another thing. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear the comment from time to time that, you know, has the church ever thought about starting a ministry to such and such? You know, fill in the blank. And, and that's a great heart. I don't ever want you to not, not bring those, those, those thoughts, those questions. I, I love it when people think about those things. But, but what I want us to be careful of is that we don't create a culture here to where the only ministry that gets done is when the church starts it institutionally if you were to ask me do we have a homeless ministry in our church my answer would be no we don't have an institutional homeless ministry of first baptist church of the islands but you know what we have we have a pocket of people who have an intense heartbeat for that segment of our community who have taken it upon themselves walking through the appropriate steps to see if we as a church would like to link up with their heart for that segment of our culture. And do we have a homeless ministry? No. But do we have people here whose heart beat for that segment? Absolutely. And you know what? They do something about it on a weekly basis. That's the church doing what the church is supposed to do. And there are people in this church who have great needs in their lives. There are people in this church who face challenges. There are people here in this church who, who are in dire straits, whether that's emotionally or financially or in whatever way it may be. There are needs represented in this church that we will never have a ministry for. It would be almost impossible to have a ministry officially for every segment and every need that arises. But you know what? We have a good 450 adults strong to 500 adults strong that if we just get this, 
there will be virtually no need that goes lacking. Because it's the church, a bowl full of redefined people who are a community, not me-centered, but we-centered, who intersect those needs as God allows and God leads. To say, oh, you got a need? I've got some money. Let me help you. Oh, you've got a need. You're laid out. You're on your back. You're not able to do some things for yourself right now. You know what? I've got two arms that are strong and two legs that work, and let me help with your need. Why? Because you and I are in the same bowl, and we have a heart for one another, and you would do it for me in a heartbeat. I'm just going to do it for you in this instance. Why? Because, bless God, we have a Savior who did it first for us. And you have a church like that, and you'll have people outside the walls banging to get in. Why? Because all they know is a boss who hung them out to dry, a co-worker who stole their contract, somebody else who walked down on them when they needed them. All they know is betrayal and mistrust and do me wrong. And when they intersect with a group like this that does it right, hey, trusting God is an easy thing. I could have titled this message, How to Split a Church. And one of the ways I would have said was to say, let's all be every man for himself, and we'll split it quickly. Me-centeredness is one of the worst threats. By the way, what was the temptation of the enemy in the garden? Oh, eat this fruit, and you will be just like God. Me-centered. And he hasn't quit using that same old line ever since. What's the third threat? Boy, this is a warm, fuzzy message, isn't it? It's going to get warmer and fuzzier. The third threat is unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin. The first threat, doctrinal error, redefines the bowl. Tears the bowl apart. The second sin, me-centeredness, rips the heart out of the church. Every man for himself. Destroys the sense of community. The third threat, unrepentant sin is what breaks the mirror that is designed to reflect the image of Christ and the glory of God. I was in seminary. I graduated seminary in 2000. I started in 1997. It was four years, solid years. Not everyone can cram three years into four, but I did it somehow. It's a little better than college. I crammed four into six there, so I figure if I ever get my doctorate, we're pretty much on time. We'll see. Uh, that might take a break from heaven to get my attention for that one. I was in seminary, and as was often the custom, a group of students would go door-to-door um, on Fridays, actually, and just looked for ways to share the gospel. Respectful, tactful, but just sharing the gospel. I remember one conversation on a doorstep with a person, and the basic gist of that conversation was, oh, I remember back in the day, the seminary that I went to didn't have a great reputation years before. It's very liberal, doctrinal error, um, a lot of issues. And um, I remember the person saying, you know, I remember I could walk down the street just outside of the men's dorm and would have to duck from the liquor bottles being thrown out the windows. That was the seminary. <laughs> Training up leaders for ministry. Woohoo! People don't forget that kind of stuff for very long. It takes a long time to forget that. And when a church who is a bowl full of people whose lives have been redefined 
break or crack or tarnish the mirror that's designed to reflect God's glory, it takes a long time to restore it. A long time. One of the quickest ways to destroy and to tarnish the glory of God in the life of a person who doesn't know Him is to proclaim one thing but to live another. Notice what it says in Titus chapter 2. We've got it on the overhead. You're, you're right there in Titus if you want to turn with me. Chapter 2, notice what it says, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, why? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. When we get back into 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 5. What you're going to find there in chapter 5 is that the church collectively, it was not the pastor of that church. It was not Paul imposing some form of authority. He was given the responsibility to that church in Corinth to deal with a man who was immersed and engaged in extreme sexual immorality. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, you want to read ahead, you'll find it right there, but buckle in before you get there. And he says, it's your responsibility as a church to put this man out. Not because he had stumbled, not because he had fallen, not, be not because he had you know, misstepped. I would even say not because of sin, because we all sin and we all fall short on a daily basis. At least the guy speaking right now does. The issue was unrepentant sin. It's when the person planted his feet and straightened his jaw and he stiffened his neck and he hardened his head and he said, I don't care what God wants. I don't care what his word says. This is the way I choose to live. And it was of such a, such a nature that brought such tarnish to the body of Christ, to the name of Christ, that Paul said, you have to deal with this, church. And he said, the way you deal with it is you put him out. And there were steps to take. We'll get there when we get to 1 Corinthians 5. But it was all because God takes the reflection of his image very seriously. And in virtually every local Christian church today, there are believers who have been bought at a tremendously high price who take the level of living less seriously than God does engaged in conduct that would bring reproach to the name of Christ if anyone knew of it. And the standard is very high, not for us to get right to get to God, but for us to live in a way, once we know him, that reflects him accurately. What's one of the threats, the greatest threats of the local church? It's unrepentant sin. Let me ask you a question. What is it that you may be engaged in right now, even if no one else knows about it, but if people were to find out, it would bring into disreproach the name of Jesus Christ? What is it in your life that you are engaging in as an act of your will, unrepentant, unwilling to put down, unwilling to change, unwilling to be confronted on, that if other people knew about it, it would drag the name of Jesus right through the mud? That's a, that's a choice you've got to make. It's a choice I have to make. Which matters most? Our choice, our supposed freedom, our comfort, our desires being met are living in a way that honors the one who gave his whole entire life for us. And then the fourth threat that faces the local church today is missing the gospel. In other words, living as though there is another way to know God, missing the gospel. 
Oh, if you just live a good life, if you just join this church, if you just get baptized, hey, you're in with God. You can live any way you want. God's going to bless you. You're his child. He's adopted you. Everything's okay. You know what that does? That's a false gospel, and it silences the megaphone. Because if all it takes is for people to come to church, what real need is there for us to proclaim the message of the gospel? The reason we're called to proclaim the message of the gospel is because people's lives depend on it. People's eternities depend on it. And there are churches that are silent today in their witness. Why? Because they're comfortable and they're content at least having a crowd. Hey, as long as we have a crowd, who needs the gospel, they say. What I say is that regardless of the crowd, the gospel is our message. If it polarizes, if it pushes people off, we proclaim the same message that Jesus proclaimed. And so when you boil it all down and you get to the heart of it, what is it? The church is just simply a collection of insiders that are pursuing outsiders. And there are threats against it. If the doors close, will this community ache and long for us to return? I would hope so. Because of the testimony of our lives, because we put on display the God who loves us and saved us, and because we're out in the midst sharing the message and displaying the message, it changed everything, everything for us. Let's pray. Lord, I don't want to be another statistic. I don't want us to be another statistic of a church that once did it well. 20, 30, 40 years down the road are closed down. Where a grocery store or a restaurant or a school has taken our place. Lord, I really hope that this church, until you come back, will be faithful. (laughs) to be healthy, to walk a walk that honors you, knowing it.